welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. Yeah, to use these margin times where we're driving each other insane, um, but it's good. I know my kids a lot better now than I did four months ago. And I'm super thankful for that. And we've dreamed together a lot more because we've had these margin times of boredom which are necessary and needed. We need boredom. We need things that are not planned just to be together and sit and try to figure out what the heck we're going to (laughs) do. I am so excited about today's episode, and I can't wait for you to meet our guests. They are fantastic, and the conversation only gets better. I'm Luke Voigt. Um, I lead a nonprofit called Capital Community Athletics. That is a sporting platform for welcoming our newest refugee neighbors into life in the United States. I am a blessed husband of one and a father of two. I'm a white male in my 30s, and I learn most things from God, my wife, my incredible parents, uh, kids, and neighbors. And I've learned a lot less from formal schools and education, but I am still grateful for that. I'm a follower of a Middle Eastern carpenter named Jesus. I grew up in a home that loved him, but I never experienced his power until much later in life. If I could clone myself and had a second job I would be a middle school PE teacher right here in my neighborhood in Sacramento. I'm Josh Cobbs. Um, I'm married. Got two adorable kiddos. They're nine and four. And I would say that my family is probably my, my number one thing in life. Basically, if I'm not working or doing some kind of project or something like that, I'm, I'm spending time with my kids and my wife. Uh, For work, my primary job is I am an administrator of a radiation medicine department in academic medicine. That's my full-time job. Part-time, I am in the reserves, the Army Reserves. Also, I teach graduate school uh, with the Division of Management at my medical university. I have a degree in healthcare uh, management. That's uh, my master's degree, but primarily I'd say that I've learned most of everything that I know to this point through a lot of trial and error and talking to a really good board of personal mentors. I found that that's probably the more meaningful learnings that I've taken away in life so far. Um, I wouldn't consider myself a religious person, but I do believe that there's a higher power out there. I try not to fit my spiritual side into a box. And let's see, if I had a clone, I think... My clone would be traveling around the world working on some kind of uh, renewable energy projects. And I'm your host, Caben Kramer. I'm a fourth-generation California farmer, farming walnuts on fertile concow land along the Feather River. I'm a husband and a father to two awesome kids. I identify as white male, and I'm living my 30s. Formally, I'm educated as an engineer, although I've never actually practiced engineering as a profession. I identify as a follower of Jesus and find the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus attractive. And if I could clone myself to do two occupations, my clone would probably be a cultural anthropologist.
Of Dust and Divinity is an ongoing conversation carrying over from one episode to the next. Like if the podcast itself were a table in the back corner of your local pub, and each round of guests are like friends gathered at the table in free-flowing conversation. And if those friends were left a slip of paper from their previous loafers at the table by which to begin their chat. So here's the note left on that proverbial table by our previous guests, and it serves as the jumping off point for this episode. And you come to quickly realize that the adoptive parents hold most of the power. Um, We're the ones with the finances. There's a whole lot, and I would rather you guys look up the voices of adoptees or, or birth mothers for that. But um, just realizing the amount of power that we had in this process, it's kind of like, oh, you know, to be blunt, birth mothers get screwed over. Um, they are not incubators. They are not your surrogate. They are a woman making a very difficult decision. And to kind of relinquish that power, or maybe you can't like, Maybe you can't relinquish it because maybe that's just the way it is, but to recognize it and to give them space. And with that lead in, here's our conversation with Josh and Luke talking about power, influence, and control. Enjoy the journey. I see it in a lot of different areas. Sometimes I feel like I have uh, you know, multiple lives going on at the same time because I have the military side, which has a very formal, very rigid structure um, to it. And, you know, it's been built over hundreds of years in that, in that structure. Um, and so you kind of understand authority and power in, in one way and how decisions are made and, and who has the authority to make those decisions. And then on the civilian side, uh, just in business, you understand the power dynamics of, you know, making business related decisions, but then also in healthcare, um, you see the power of, you know, folks in, in physician roles or direct care roles, you know, nurses, uh, therapists, um, people who are giving hope to someone. There are so many different dynamics to power, and it may look one way on paper, um, but it doesn't always necessarily translate that way throughout life. When I think of power, you know, I think the first thing is you think of authority and decisions and control. But when I think about power in terms of healthcare, it's very different. Um, you know, it's more of like a powerless and the feeling of, of wanting to get some power back. You mentioned that there is a way that we structure power on paper, and then there's a way that power is experienced in the real world. Can you flesh that out a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I'll give an example. So, you have a board. Let's just say you have a board. Uh, like in my university, uh, we have a board of directors uh, that oversees the university, and then there's a president that reports to the board, and under the president's all the, you know, executive leaders. And you know, we have seventeen thousand employees. Um, but at the end of the day, 
there is certain structure to it that you could look at an org chart or you could say like this is the responsibility or this is how it works here um, but I think all of us know when you walk into a room you know someone's the ultimate influencer in that room and has the authority and, and really has the power um, to leverage and, and push decisions in a certain way you know and then on the the flip side of that is you know thinking about somebody in their health care in some situations, the power is with the patient, but in many ways, uh, the patient doesn't have the power. We have had the blessing of knowing many of our newest refugee neighbors to the United States, and we've spent many hours in dental waiting rooms um, and hospital waiting rooms with our refugee friends who have insurance. Uh, government, you know, insurance, Medi-Cal, um, public insurance that's offered to them, which says, like what Joshua said, uh, they should have some sort of power or control in, in choice. But for example, just last week, I was in a medical clinic with a friend, and uh, he clearly has a some sort of tear in his knee, and the doctor kept on saying that it was growing pains for this young guy. Um, and this is the third appointment in eight months that this guy has been suffering with what I think is a torn ACL. And the doctors continue to just give him ibuprofen and tell him it's growing pains and send him home. It's frustrating. Finally, he asked me, his soccer coach, to come with him. And I was able to go with him to the doctor's appointment. I had to fight to get in there because of all this um, COVID regulations, but uh, they finally allowed me to go in with his dad, and um, I had to really push back on three different occasions during the doctor's appointment that he should get at least an x-ray and ideally an MRI, uh, because he's got a real problem with his knee swelling and all this stuff. This is not growing pains, and finally they caved, but it takes advocacy uh, from people who even have a, a little bit more of a clue of the system. I don't have much of a clue, but but yes, we run into that stuff all the time, or new neighbors of ours, women constantly um, going to appointments and finding out that their doctor has been changed and they can no longer get a translator. Um, things that had been set up and promised to them where they were feeling some sort of self-sufficiency and ability to learn the system then kind of going back to ground zero and being very frustrated um, yeah it's it's for sure an issue with with our newest refugee neighbors One of the things I wrestle with here on the farm is answering the question, why am I the one here on the farm? Really the only answer is because of my privilege. There are plenty of people of a different skin color than mine who are way more qualified to farm than I am, right? I don't have years of experience farming. I'm not, I don't have a degree in it. I don't have decades of having done it before. Um, I am simply the male son of a landowner. 
And I recognize that that is the definition of privilege. And so then I think about, well, what do I do with that now? This is where agency, power, control, authority come back for me um, because this is my zone, right? Dealing with the farm, dealing with the land, dealing with the land ethic and the relationship we have to people in the land. And I don't have any good answers. I don't really know what to do um, because while I'm here farming because I'm the son of a landowner, it's also not my land to do anything with. And I also don't use that to excuse the personal responsibility I have to create a more equitable society with the privilege I have. And Luke, I hear you doing that in the dentist office or the doctor's office. And it makes me wonder about my relationship to power. It's interesting because I think when I think about fairness and equality, I think about being on a level playing field um, to compete for the same opportunities. And my gender and my skin color immediately give me a, a leg up in the world. Someone competing just as hard or harder may not be afforded the same opportunities. Going back to one of the big things that shaped the whole trajectory of my life was really a car wreck. I was in a really terrible car accident um, when I was still you know, a teenager, boarding school. And my father's medical condition just couldn't really be handled. Um, the medical needs that he required, it just couldn't be handled at the, the health organizations that we had available in Kenya. Um, there were some concerns about head trauma and things like that. Um, so ultimately, my parents decided it was better to return to the U.S. and there would at least be family. Um, my dad could uh, see experts and, you know, health professionals here. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't too sure of how long we would be here, if I'd return back to Kenya, but I'd never really planned to really ever leave. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'd always expected to go back to Kenya and like, that's where I considered home. Um, for, for me, I went when I was a young child and, you know, that was where I felt most comfortable in the world. But over the years, what kind of stuck in the back of my mind was that my family could just leave. Like if we needed health care, you know, life-saving intervening care or, you know, specialists, we had the ability to leave. I recognized that there are a lot of people around the world who don't have access to just basic health care, you know, getting checkups for pregnancy, um, getting vaccines, things like that. So that's really what steered me toward healthcare and a lot of what I do right now. There are a lot of really highly qualified trained professionals in Kenya and Ethiopia and you know all over the world. Um, but sometimes they need a connector, and so that's where I've steered a lot of my life is is toward that. You know, kind of recognizing that I have resources and access to things not because of something I ever did. It was just. Who I, you know, the family I was born into. That's complicated. It's unfair in the world. That's kind of how I look at it. Um, but at the same time, you know, what do you do with that? I think, Kevin, to your point, you are trying to wrestle with something that you didn't necessarily ask for. It's just where you're at. So I guess what do what do you what do you think? 
I think right now for me, it's I'm trying to learn about the First Nations people in this area, um, which is the Maidu Konkau tribe. So, but I want to start there. I want to start by just attending meetings and just not to contribute anything, but just to um, familiarize myself with their pattern of moving in the world. There's also a community for migrant Mexican farm workers in this area. And that neighborhood has a certain reputation around here. I want to to engage that community. And it's hard because I know I'm going to do it wrong. And I'm really afraid of doing it wrong because I think my good intentions, because it's so steeped in my own privilege, is often not just good intention, right? It's baked into white saviorism or some kind of other white complex. And so part of it is becoming more aware of those internal triggers and then figuring out, okay, how, how can I approach this community that doesn't come across as condescending or aloof or pandering or any of those other things that I don't want to be associated with? And then another hard question to answer then is how do I frame the hours in my day to have space for a very different pace of living and communication, and then willingly make those purposeful interruptions in order to be more present and participatory, um, while also at the same time not slacking on the responsibilities I have in other parts of life. And juggling all that is a challenge, and so some things will probably have to go and make space for it, and I don't know what those things are, and that's okay. Those seem to be the two communities in my part of the world that were the most absent from my childhood and the most absent from my adulthood and something that I need to pay conscious and deliberate attention to those voices in order to begin moving from where I am now to at least be able to have the conversation a little bit more of a reasonable space of like, okay, now I know the stakeholders and I know kind of the boundaries of impact and I kind of understand things from their perspective And now we can actually have a conversation together about maybe what I could do um, instead of me just kind of thinking about it by my lonesome self out on a tractor in the tree canopy. Um, The pace of life is so fast and it's everything's always moving. So with the pandemic, um, things have slowed down. And I, I think neighborhoods, I, I don't know about both of you, but I mean, our neighbors in our little neighborhood, people have never spoken one word to each other before the pandemic. And now everyone knows each other. And same here. It, yeah. I mean, that's the pace of life, like things slowing down and, Really taking the time not to say, yeah, I'm listening, but actually listening. You don't have anywhere to go. You don't have any place to be. Um, I, I don't know. I I think pace of life has a lot to do with our ability to be better listeners and take more time um, to, to think deeply. We, we want to say we think deeply. But we don't, I guess is what I'm getting at. 
Well, and that's actually what a what a mentor of mine said on a bike ride just the other day as we were talking about our relationship with our children and going deeper and I he's a great father and what he said um, really connects with what you were just saying Josh is he said so many people growing up told me it's about quality time with your kids quality time and he said I disagree I think in order to hear them well and understand and know who they are you need quantity time you need hours so I couldn't agree with you more it's it's not about quality and the okay we got you know one rep in this week it's about the quantity because through that boredom that's where some of the best most meaningful moments come from at least for me um, and that's something I I only recently discovered and before that I was you know I call my dad and be like I mean am I doing something wrong I mean I feel like I'm a pretty good dad but you know how are we so close and I'm not able to be as close with my son and you know that's not something he could just sort of tell me how to do it you know you don't you don't just have a road map of how to be a great dad yeah that's what i'm experiencing during this pandemic time as well um and prior to march and so many things shutting down i um we we're anticipating a very very busy season of work with a like 70 hour weeks for both my wife and I, and um, it wasn't good. It was not right. Uh, so we are, you know, trying to see the silver lining in a lot of this and praying that a lot of people get well who are sick and that the disease slows down. But we have, as a family unit, been able to, um, yeah, to use these margin times where we're driving each other insane. Um, but it's good. Like you're just like what you said, Josh, like I'm, I know my kids a lot better now than I did four months ago. Um, and I'm super thankful for that. And we've dreamed together a lot more because we've had these margin times of boredom, which are necessary and needed. We need boredom. We need things that are not planned just to be together and sit and try to figure out what the heck we're going to do. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I totally get that. I think we want to naturally, we just want to fill our days. And um, with the pandemic, especially in, in my role, I was just, I was so impressed and awed with the direct care folks that I work with. I mean, it was just it's incredible to, to watch people being willing to go to work every day and take care of patients and, and put themselves at risk. And then from a support standpoint, like I, I, I can't treat a patient. I, you know, I'm not a doctor or anything like that, but I can help set up the operation in the right way. And so you can put on a lot of meaningful hours of, of work time in my role. I was, you know, I was able to do that, but you know, at the same time you, you also start to realize, you know, there's only so many hours of work that you can put in. And then, you know, before the pandemic happened, you were putting in those hours as well. And then what were you doing with the extra time? And I think that's really where everything shifted for us is, 
the same, if not more, hours of work were getting put in, um, mostly more. Um, but that that extra time has gone exponentially further than it ever did before, because there's just you just have more. Um, you have more time and less distraction, I guess. Um, that's I'm I'm not happy that there's a pandemic. I am. I wish there was no pandemic, um, but I'm grateful that I have filled that time differently when I'm not working. So Luke, how does this uh, affect kind of your day-to-day and your organizations and what kind of conversations have you been having the last two or three weeks? Yeah, so um, what I do on a, on a weekly basis, I, I lead an organization called Capital Community Athletics, and it is a platform for uni- uniting neighbors from around the world and across the street uh, through sport. We want to see our newest refugee neighbors in America thrive and flourish in their new home and feel welcome and, uh, and feel like it, these are places where their kids can learn and, th- and, and just really, um, yeah, grow. And so as I do that through coaching a lot of soccer and training other coaches and being involved in after-school programs, something that I've found helpful um is uh yeah it's just it's just what jesus says he says you know that in the word it says to be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry i'm not the deepest thinker i am constantly with people i love being with people i'm learning slowly how important silence and stillness is uh, in my life in order to realize some of these power dynamics that just like you guys, I was born into. Um, and there is heavy baggage there that comes with that. And so just when I shut up more and I speak, um, slowly and I listen well, and I'm not defensive, um, I'm finding that to be extremely life-giving, uh, in this season and especially this this really um, just important time for the world with all that's happening around us. It's just listen, listen, listen. So that that's constantly what I'm trying to tell myself because I am quick to speak too often. Uh, and so that's kind of what's guided us as we've started our work here in Sacramento for the last three years is listen, don't assume, don't project needs on people that we think they need. Just listen and get to know them and have them at your table and realize that they are that there's a lot of similarities and differences that we think are there are really not there and other things that we think are similar or a lot different we know a lot less than we I should I should say I know a lot less than I um, and sometimes I go into situations thinking I, I have so yeah just just learning learning to listen has been really really helpful. Uh, and I think there's a long ways to go in my life. Uh, my wife would tell you that, <laughs> but 
but yeah, it's it's been it's been good just hearing how people coming from very different backgrounds and different religious systems and stuff and how much I can learn from them and grow and and how much fuller my life can be from just knowing somebody like that and and just shutting up and just asking them their story and not trying to uh, defend myself if something they say rubs me the wrong way or whatever, but just to try to listen and let um, let that lead. Luke, one of the things that I recognize within myself that I need your wisdom for is I, I tend to think of interactions like a podcast format, as in I think, oh, I'm going to go sit down with this particular group of people and I'm going to listen and it's going to be so mind-blowing and revolutionary that I'm going to leave seeing the world in a totally different way and I'm going to also at the same time clear out a lot of junk from within my own self while that's all happening and also I'm never going to make a mistake ever again in the future. <laughs> and of course, right, that <laughs> that's just so far from reality. But I find that in my actual experiences with people from a different cultural background than mine, the first like four to six interactions are usually really awkward. And I feel like it's not going anywhere or I feel like I'm doing it wrong or I feel like I'm being like secretly offensive somehow. So for someone who uh, has a lot to learn, me, uh, what does listening well look like in just a super practical way when someone moves into your neighborhood? Invite them over and first get to know them. You know, we, we, we have an easy platform of getting to know people just in the local park, letting our children play together and scrape their knees together. And even though they're from different cultures and different places, kids are kids and they play. And so a lot of times that unites parents and walls come down and playing soccer together is a great, I mean, soccer is a universal language. And so that really helps to kind of set the table um, for better conversations of get, getting to know and listen well to the harder things to listen to um, as we as we get to know each other longer and as we then open up our homes to one another and share tea with each other, then it's easy to listen to somebody and it's easy to have grace with somebody when you know their story. But if you don't know their story, then you quickly, even me, always, it's easy to have our, my mind I'm thinking, oh, this person is like this, or this person is like this. But then when you actually sit at the table face to face with them, they're eating the same food and drinking the same drink. So many misconceptions are dissolved and kindness abounds. Do you, do you notice that in real time? Do you notice that like when you're sitting at the table and someone does something surprising, are you aware of it in the moment? Or is it like when you're later on that evening getting ready for bed and kind of rehashing the day with your wife that you reflect on you're like, Oh, I actually, I had that, I had that person pegged wrong or I need to change my thinking in some way. How does that process of dislodging some of those assumptions or coming to understand someone's story work for you? It's a great question. It happens in different ways uh, for me frequently. Yeah. If I get a moment before I sleep, 
to just be still and listen. Often, uh, you know, those conversations will come back to mind. And yeah, something will come to mind there. But most of the time, I'm not that introspective and I'm not that deep of a thinker. And it usually happens through conversation with somebody else, like my wife, most of the time, as we're talking about the day later. Yeah, usually it doesn't hit me real time. I think subconsciously it it does hit me. And as they share their story, empathy and sadness for them, for their loss, it grows. And you realize that these people are living right down the street and you are honored to be in their presence. And it is an amazing gift to have them in your neighborhood. How resilient they are and hardworking and their willingness to jump into the unknown is really special. So that, I would say, is real time. But other things hit you later. One of the things that I'm, that I'm hearing in this conversation is the inability to exercise patience and active listening and to really soak up you know, w- w- your surroundings, you know, what's around you and, and who's around you and try and understand people's different journeys and walks of life. I work with a, a non-profit um, that collaborates with um, an academic center in, in northern Ethiopia, and I've been partnering uh, with several of the quality team members there for several years now. Um, we were all kind of saying our goodbyes, and, and one of the um, surgeons called something out that was like really hit me pretty hard. She said that she, re- you know, really appreciated the, the uh, physician's names for hell. Um, she said, you know, I really appreciate you were held because your leadership style is so effortless and so humble and you take the time to get to know people and really build true relationships and friendships along the way and like that's you know that's how you've been able to do what you've done and create such strong partnerships across you know multiple institutions and I mean, she's done incredible, just insanely incredible work. Um, And she's like, it's so starkly different to the American way of leadership, where we have to self-promote. It's, you know, I don't think she said we have to, but self-promotional leadership is sort of the American style of leadership, you know? And if you're not promoting yourself in some way, than somebody else is and they're they're moving forward kind of tying it back to the patience and the listening is that ingrained in our culture to succeed you have to be pushing ahead of the next person after a while of that like you're not listening to people you have the best ideas always you know and that's something that's that's really hard to do is is to have the ability to slow down and recognize you don't always have the best ideas and that others differing perspectives if you can really actually listen to that different perspective you you could learn something and that's like that sounds very like textbooky um but it's it's really hard to do and i don't think 
very many people do it well. I know I don't do it well. You know, I walk into a room and I'm like, okay, this is what we need to do. And I, I've already kind of mapped out in my brain how we're going to get something done. Um, and I want to engage people, but not to the level that I should be. And it was just really fascinating for me to hear this professional who is very successful in her career as a physician, kind of highlighting some flaws in the leadership that she's experienced. And the more I thought about it, the more you recognize it seems pretty simple, and not just in a professional setting, but in a personal setting, that we would be better listeners, and we get to know people, but we just don't. And that's our show. Thank you for joining in this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. In the next episode, we go even deeper with Josh and Luke about pace of life, good parenting, how to say no to yes, and the gifts of being a dad in the middle of quarantine. Be sure to subscribe to get that next episode. And here's a sneak peek. As we looked closely at their life, by God's grace, we had the ability to slow down, primarily when I, because I got really sick. But when I was sick, I was able to see what they did in times that I thought were lazy or unproductive. They were walking down their dirt road and sitting with their neighbor and eating sugar cane with their neighbor and not productive in the west size, right? But man, those people were full of joy and they knew how to deal with hardship and they were resilient. And we're still in a process of learning, but as we move to a new neighborhood and a new country here in the States of applying some of those things, like make our world smaller and less yes to things. And that means that we have to say no more frequently. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of Clementine Brands for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is, to live everything. Live the questions now.